This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored yes you've got it it's another episode of literary tracks it's episode number 302 can you believe it 302 episodes of literary tracks we're not even scratching the surface of all the star trek novels and comics that are out there after 302 episodes but this is your official star trek books and comics podcast here on the trek fm network i'm bruce gibson and sitting across from me on my computer screen is Dan Gunther. Hey, Bruce. That's the thing. You know, 302 episodes. I'm not so much amazed at the sheer number, but just the fact that how many more Star Trek books and comics there still are out there that we haven't even gotten to, even though the show has been doing 302 episodes. That's crazy to me. It really is. It's it's insane, but it makes our jobs easier. And the fact that we don't have to sit here and scratch our heads. What are we going to talk about on the next episode? Hmm. <laughs> we need to come up with a topic. We just we can just shoot in the dark and go. Okay, that's what we're going to cover. That's what we're going to read. So, no. if anything, our challenge is trying to keep up with as much as we want to read. Exactly. Yeah. Just reach over onto the bookshelf and grab something and chances are, oh, we haven't done that one yet. So, <laughs> <laughs> And one of the ones that we reached out for this episode in the feature, it's the first adult original Kelvin Timeline novel called The Unsettling Stars, and it's written by Alan Dean Foster. And we're going to have Alan here on the show during the feature to talk about that novel. So this has been at least 10 years in the waiting to get this novel because it was supposed to come out years ago and it didn't don't know the mm-hmm. whole story why, but anyway, uh, we now have it and we've read it. So that's what we're going to talk about in the feature. But before we do that, there is a new book that is out or coming out. I'm not sure if it's out yet. And it's one that we are not going to cover in a future episode of literary treks in the feature because it is a little golden book for kids and it's called star Trek alphabet book. I gotta say, I love these. Now, I've actually picked up the two previous ones or two of the previous ones. I'm not sure if there's been more. I don't even have a kid yet, but I'm like building this future library of little golden Star Trek books. So this is exciting. There's another one to add to it. 
And yeah, this cover reveal is pretty cool. Yeah, and uh, this was tweeted out by Ethan Beavers on Twitter. And of course, if he's tweeting it out, it's on Twitter, right? But Ethan, that's E-T-H-E-N, Beavers. Uh, look for him. His handle is at C-R-E-T-I-N-E-B. And you can check out the book cover. It's got Kirk and Janeway and Cisco because B is for Borg, and we see that happening on here. We see A is for alien, and we see an Andorian. A also means Andorian. <laughs> C is for captains. That's why we see Janeway, Kirk, and Cisco. So that's just the cover alone. So I can't wait to look in the book. I didn't see anything, nor did I look to see when this is coming out or if it's out now. Mm-hmm. I love this cover, and for one very specific reason is that Deep Space Nine seems to get short shrift a lot of the time. So I love that under C for Captains, we've got Kirk and Janeway and Cisco. Yes. Captain <laughs> Benjamin Cisco. Yes. Yes. S is for Cisco. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, I'm I'm happy about that too. It is amazing when you think, you know, how do they sit around and decide which captains they're going to feature? You know, I wonder what that discussion was like. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they have to know how fraught that discussion is, because like, I remember when the first teaser trailers for Enterprise came out and they said before Kirk, before Picard and before Janeway, there was Archer and people were mad that Cisco was not included there. So I remember you know, that. Oh, yeah. P- Trek fans care about this stuff, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I didn't think about it at the time, but now that I'm thinking about, well, maybe they're talking about starship captains. Hmm. You know, since Archer was a starship captain, so they're relating to starship captains. I, I know. I'm trying to, you know, make this work, but that's probably not the case. <laughs> <laughs> so switching gears here, you know, we, we discussed on an episode not that long ago that because of COVID-19 and comic books aren't being delivered to comic shops, IDW and some other comic publishers out there have pulled back on releasing new comics. So we're not getting any new Star Trek comics for the next few months. So we decided, why don't we pull an old comic off the shelf and just do a quick review of that as if it's new. And one of the ideas we had is to read a comic that was written by Aaron Eisenberg, who played Nog on Deep Space Nine. And as most of you are probably aware, um, Aaron Eisenberg did pass away this past September 21st of 2019. And we didn't really have a chance to look at this comic, but we thought this would be a great opportunity to do that. Yeah, I'm really glad you suggested this. I thought it was a really nice kind of something different to do. Like you said, we haven't gotten comics in a while and probably won't get any for a little while longer yet. So, uh, yeah, this was uh, from the Malibu line of comics back when they had the license for a short time and written by Aaron Eisenberg. So just a really fun comic to read. Yeah. And there's a little article in the back of the article about Aaron because he co-wrote this with Mark Panicia and Mark is a comic writer. And the two of them were talking at a Star Trek convention and Aaron said, why aren't there more comics featuring Nog? And so they decided to team up and write this comic that is a Nog comic. And it's called The Rules of Diplomacy. So to start off with this, uh, we have, and, and by the way, if, if no one's ever read this, I mean, we're going into the full thing. So spoiler alert. How's that? So just <laughs> want to make you aware of that. But so 
Nog is not yet in Starfleet, and he is interested in Starfleet, and he has expressed that in- interest to Cisco uh, before this issue came out. So this takes place, what, in the third season, I would say? Actually, very specifically, in between the third and fourth seasons. And this is, you know, the Star Trek nerd glasses coming on here. So Cisco is a captain at this point, and he became a captain in the final episode of season three. And in season four, he shows up with his head clean shaven, uh, but he still has his hair here. So very specifically, they've placed this in between the third and fourth season. Yeah. And actually, the comic was published that summer in between the seasons. So it's like perfect timing. Nice. Uh, with the seasons. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. But he uh, is recruited by Cisco to accompany a young officer from the Klingon Empire on a mission to go to Ferenginar. And so, of course, Nog is like, what a great opportunity to, to show my skills and show Cisco that, you know, I'm worthy to do a mission like this and he'll help me get into Starfleet. So this was his opportunity. And of course, Jake's like, come on, Nog, really? What's going on? Why do you want to do this? <laughs> that typical <laughs> relationship that they have. Yeah, it's nice to kind of dive back into this dynamic. And it really did snap me back to watching DS9 back during that period of time. These personalities, it's just, ah, there's so much I love about that series. And to kind of get something back in the middle of that again was really nice. And I read that Aaron Eisenberg really wanted to have a Klingon in the story because he thought uh, Ferengis and Klingons were an interesting mix, the two together. So that's why it's a Klingon story with Nog in it. Mm-hmm. And, and Nog is even given a, a communication badge, which he's happy about, too. Yeah, he's so proud of that. I thought that was really neat and, you know, so fitting with his personality. And I mean, who's going to know Nog's personality better than Aaron Eisenberg himself, right? So Absolutely. So the Klingons arrive on Deep Space Nine and uh, the, the Klingon ship is going to the Gamma Quadrant for a two-day mission. So this younger Klingon diplomat is going to go Ferenginar and he's got an older Klingon accompanying him along with Nog and with Chief O'Brien. So Chief O'Brien is piloting the runabout as they go to Ferenginar. So Nog and this Klingon diplomat, Gron, who's a young man. So, you know, they're, they're both young guys. They beam down. And of course, all these Ferengi come up to Nog because they all know him and say, hey, you know, remember me? Hey, you owe me this. And hey, are you still interested in purchasing this and stuff? And he's like, I'm here on a diplomatic mission. They're like, what? Diplomatic? Like, ah, who does that? You're a freaking Ferengi. So, <laughs> uh, so Gron wants to see where they, uh, where they train for combat. And of course they go in there and there's Ferengi fighting each other. And Gron thinks it's a joke, like, you know, oh, this is a joke. You guys don't know how to fight, you know? And Nog's like, oh, but we show spirit. (laughs) And, uh, but then he shows off that to Gron that they have these big institutions of business. And that's where we nurture the spirit of opportunity. Opportunity plus instinct equals profit. I do love this juxtaposition of the Klingon and Ferengi cultures. And, you know, 
they're kind of both cultures that we as Star Trek fans at various points in Star Trek history have been like told to kind of look down on. Like the Klingons were militaristic and barbaric and fighters and the Ferengi are opportunistic and exploitative and all that. But, you know, each one kind of has their own merits and to kind of see those two cultures come together and face each other in this way, I thought, you know, that's, that's really fun. And I, I love that, like the show itself has Nog facing off against the Klingons in a later, I think season five episode with him dealing with Martok and Klingon loiterers on the promenade when he was working security. So I, I have to think that like that season five dog is using some of the lessons he learned in this issue here as well. Yeah, this issue really works well into the series for sure. And not not even knowing where the series is going, it, mm-hmm. it works really well. And then, you know, there's Gron wants to gamble with these Ferengi friends of Nog's and Nog's like, I don't think this is a good idea because, you know, they cheat and all that. But uh, Nog finds something under a table that they're using like magnetic dice or whatever to skew the game in their favor. But then Nog foils their plans and Gron ends up winning uh, in in the gambling stuff. And, and we come to find out that these two have this unique situation, like you're saying about where they both value something. So they're very similar in a lot of ways. One values honor, the other values profit, but it's both about valuing something in their society that's important to them. Yeah, definitely. And I think they both figure out by by the end that they are more alike than unlike. Absolutely. So yeah, I mean, even when the other Fringi figure out that they cheated, they go to confront Gron as if they're going to attack him. And Nog, in his wisdom, positions like, hey, yeah, aren't you happy that Gron won because he's going to go back to his home planet and tell everyone what a great gambling establishment we have and all these Klingons want to come here and spend their money and gamble. And the other Frankie are like, oh, yeah, 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 this is great. Thanks, Gron, for coming. So Nog really helped that situation out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and really showed uh, how a Ferengi can be a good diplomat. Absolutely. Like, that was very diplomatic of him. <laughs> yes. So when they returned to Deep Space Nine, uh, you know, congratulations, Nog, from Cisco. You know, you you did a good job. So I thought it was a nice story for Nog. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a fun little diversionary tale. And, you know, like we've said, one that fits in really well with the established Deep Space Nine world and what's going on at the time. You know, sometimes I find with DS9, it's hard to get a story to fit in with, you know, the overarching story, things move and change from episode to episode. But the fact that they were able to find this nice little story for Nog where he's not yet in the Academy, but working towards it, it just really fit well and, and did some really good stuff for his character, I think. Yeah. So if anybody can find it uh, again, it's what 20, gosh, it's 25 years old. Oh man. Yeah. If you can find it anywhere, it's worth, you know, reading. It's a fun read. Mm-hmm. If you do have the uh, DVD with all of the previously released comics up to a certain point, it is on there as well. Malibu has a, a section on that DVD ROM, I believe. Yeah, this is a standalone comic. It's not part of a series. So just you know, be aware of that too when you're looking for it. So anyway, let's hear what people are saying on Facebook in the Babel Conference about our last episode, episode 301, where we talked about the novel 
Seven of Nine, the Star Trek Voyager novel that came out back in the day. And this episode was called A Sing of Song of Sixpence, which, you know, I've been meaning to look into really what is the origins of that song. (laughs) We discussed it on the show, but Mm -hmm. we didn't really, because Suzanne said she thought it had something to do with Blackbeard or something. Yeah, but it does predate that, I believe. Yeah. They had said, yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, I'm too busy researching Star Trek and not old songs of nursery rhymes like that. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. I don't check those out. So I thought Justin Izzer had an interesting comment in the Babel Conference where he says this is the 16th Voyager novel. And if you add seven plus nine, it equals 16. <laughs> so. <laughs> I'm just surprised Justin really picked up on that. That's that's kind of funny. Didn't even think about that. But he's wondering, you know, it's probably a coincidence, but it's kind of fun to, to think <laughs> that maybe, maybe they were smart enough to say, hey, the 16th novel should be seven plus nine. I think it's definitely a coincidence. But uh, if you're into numerology, interesting, interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And he goes on to say that was a great discussion and Seven is one of his favorite characters and he really enjoyed the novel and getting to see further character development. And he also loved seeing Janeway and Seven's relationship. He thought it was true to the show. He pointed out there isn't as much for the other main characters, but that didn't bother him too much. And he gives this novel seven out of nine nursery rhymes that tell you what's really going on. (laughs) Nice. Uh, And Travis James says, this book came out too soon. Uh, So I'm assuming there you're talking about how Seven of Nine's character maybe wasn't as established as it had been later on and this book would have done better later. Uh, Yeah, it's a good point. I also wonder if, if it came out after Infinite Regress aired, if they would have thought the book was ripping off the episode. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but we know the book did come out before that episode, but it is weird how similar they are. And Oz Trekkie mentions that in his comment about how it's so similar to what the Raven and Infinite Regress covered in their episodes. And he said he read this once when it first came out, but never got back to it. So uh, he says his main memory of this is that it was similar to the episodes and he liked the king that got his just desserts in the end. And that's something that doesn't happen all that often in the Star Trek universe. So uh, (laughs) thanks all for your comments. I'm glad you enjoyed that episode. And sounds like everybody enjoyed the novel, too. Yeah, it seems that way. It was it was fun to revisit one of the older Voyager novels. And I think it was a really fun discussion. So thank you all for your comments. And you know what? I have a feeling we have another fun discussion coming up with Alan Dean Foster. So here's the feature to talk about the unsettling stars, the first adult original Kelvin timeline novel. Okay, so let the fun begin. I'm so excited because I have been waiting years and years and years for this novel. And it's only appropriate that we talk about the settling stars, the Star Trek novel and the Kelvin timeline with the author himself, Alan Dean Foster. How are you doing? Doing just fine. And it's the unsettling stars. What did I say? The settling stars? stars. (laughs) I'm so unsettled about this. (laughs) It's quite all right. writing, Writing it and waiting 10 years for it to come out was an unsettling experience, but we'll get into that. Exactly. That's one of the things I wanted to talk about, because you did write the novelizations for the Star Trek 09 movie, and you did Star Trek Into Darkness. And then 
between those or closer to the time of Star Trek 09, you wrote this book. So it's been a decade or more. And then this, and there were three other books by other authors that take place in the Kelvin timeline that were supposed to be released. And then they weren't released. So not only do I want to know what you know about the delay of this book and how unsettling that was, but also how did you get involved in writing this book and the novelizations? Well, the novelizations just came along the way novelizations usually come this direction. Uh, I think J.J. Abrams uh, knew my work from other novelizations and maybe original work and, of course, the first Star Trek movie. Anyway, um, the request went to my agency, would I do the novelization of this reboot of Star Trek? And I said, sure. And I did. And then on the basis of that, they asked me to do Star Trek in the Darkness. And while I was doing that, apparently the idea came down to do more Star Trek uh, original novels in the Kelvin universe. And I and David Mack and I, Christopher Bennett, and I'm sorry, but I can't remember everybody's names all the time, were asked to do those novels. And I wrote mine, finished it, turned it in, was accepted as it was, was paid for it. And then as I understand it, and I think this was already out there in the, uh, in the cyber world, uh, people at CBS and or Paramount decided, excuse me, NBC and or Paramount decided that they didn't want any subsidiary material set in the Kelvin universe because it might conflict with something that JJ wanted to do in the future with the Kelvin universe. And they told Simon and Schuster, who were going to publish the novels, uh, we're sorry, but this program is is off and, and forget about it. Meanwhile, a decade goes by and suddenly now there aren't dozens of movies in the Kelvin universe. So it's not such a critical matter for original novels to be set in that universe to come out. When I was writing The Unsettling Stars, which was not the original title, but that's what we're going to call it because that's what it is. I was very much aware of the two films that J.J. had done, and I purposely wrote a book that I was careful uh, when I was writing it to do something that would not in any way that I could think of conflict with anything in the first two films. So that if they were going to do a third film or a fourth film, my novel would not conflict, hopefully, with anything in those subsequent films. Now that's not an issue at this point in time anyway. So that's how it came to be. And then when this book was ready to be published finally this year, it sounds like you probably did not have to go back and do any updates or changes to it then. No, the book is uh, as written 10 years ago, with the exception of some things in the ending, because I had written something that I thought was a clever twist and it conflicted with existing Star Trek material, including existing material in the Kelvin universe. And editorially, it was decided that they simply couldn't, that they didn't want to do that. So there were some changes made. And, uh, you know, nothing that affects the body of the book. But one of these days when I'm allowed to, I'll talk about what I did, that they insisted be changed because they felt it would conflict with pre-existing Star Trek material both in the Kelvin universe and in the original Star Trek universe. 
Otherwise, the book is just as it was written. Uh, I wanted to do a Star Trek novel that harkened back to the old Star Trek, where not everything was solved by blowing things up and people had to think, and there were moral issues at stake. Uh, not that things don't blow up in the story, they do, but that was not the thrust of the book nor the solution to the problem in the book, and that I was able to do. Excellent. One of the things that I'm curious about is uh, the differences between, of course, the the Prime Universe counterparts, the William Shatner version of Kirk, and of course, the Kelvin timeline version that you're writing about in this novel. Was there any particular challenge in bringing those characters to life on the page as opposed to the more familiar Star Trek characters? And was there anything that you brought to it that was different about writing them than writing their regular counterparts? Actually, it went fairly smoothly. I, I mean, I've been involved with Star Trek uh, practically since the beginning, at least since the animated series that I did you know, the book versions of. And so I've been around those characters for a very long time and feel quite at home with them and very familiar with them and and I didn't feel when the uh, first Star Trek reboot came out that there was a whole lot of difference in the characters. Obviously, there were some differences. But basically, it was just a younger version of the characters we all knew and loved. So it didn't really cause me any problems. The only thing that was in there that was noticeably different was the relationship, of course, between Spock and Uhura. And that I actually had fun with. Uh, I had fun with all of it. But I, I was able to develop that relationship a little bit more. And in the prime universe, there is no relationship. So that added something emotionally, certainly, to the story. I was also able to uh, use the character of Uhura a lot more than she'd been used in the prime universe. I, in fact, I made a point of it in the book. I don't want to give anything in the book really away for people who haven't read it. But Uhura's specialty, which is communication, becomes very important in the course of the story of the Unsettling Stars. So I was looking for a way to do those things. You always look when you have characters that have been done over and over and over again. If you have a chance for yourself to do them as a writer, what you look for are things where you try to find things that have not been done yet. That's almost impossible with Star Trek. But you try. You look for those little things and those little moments without breaking the character. Yeah, it. It's interesting you said that about the characters, because I did feel, especially with the first film, that it was written more to the characters, not so much to the actors. And I feel like your approach is very similar to that in this novel, because when Dan and I were reading this, we both had mentioned, well, he mentioned to me first that, you know, sometimes his mind would shift to the actors in the original series and sometimes back to the Kelvin it's like and I felt like that was happening to me too so if I read Scotty I'm I'm seeing Simon Pegg in my mind but then later I'm seeing James Doohan and it's not so much about the actors but it was the feeling that these characters were authentic so even if somebody's not a fan of these movies this really is the voice of a Star Trek novel. You don't even have to think of it as being in this universe outside of, the, like you're saying, the relationship between Uhura and Spock. And there's a reference, of course, to Spock losing his home planet. 
Well, I, you know, the book is being written with Star Trek Into Darkness in mind, and I can't do anything in the novel, or I wouldn't do anything in the novel, that would directly contradict something that had happened in the previous two films. So Spock losing Vulcan uh, actually became very important in the course of the novel. Uh, you've read it, so you know. And it, in, it leads Spock to do certain things that he might not have done if Vulcan still existed. Uh, I don't want to say so much that it creates, well, it creates sympathy in him for characters who appear in the novel. And if Vulcan was still intact and Spock was not quite, Spock was the earlier Spock, he might not have reacted exactly the same way that he does in this novel. Everything he does is still Spockish, but it might have been different if Vulcan you know, hadn't gone away in the Kelvin universe. Yeah, I actually, I really enjoyed that aspect of the novel. It's kind of an almost sympathy or compassion he has for people in this book because of their situation due to the situation that he's come through. And he does refer to his species, the Vulcans, as a refugee species a number of times, which kind of drove that point home for me, kind of the realization, yeah, that that would hugely affect his outlook and how he approaches situations like this. And of course, the original title of the book was Refugees. Mm -hmm. Yes, I was just going to ask about that, so I thought. It refers not only to Spock, but also to a, a group of aliens in the book called the Paranorians. Why was the title changed? Um, <laughs> you'd have to ask Simon and Schuster that. I, I think when you get these kinds of title changes from editorial, it's because they're not necessarily because the original title is, is not a good title. It's because there are people in editorial and sales who feel that it's not, in this case, science fiction enough. Hmm. So they, they would might be afraid there might be somebody who's in charge of sales for Northern Canada, as a, for instance, who feels that people would see the title and think it might have something to do with Africa or Europe. And people would miss the fact that it's a science fiction novel and a Star Trek novel. I obviously feel otherwise, but I have no problem with the unsettling stars, which I think is a good title and definitely better than some of the previous titles, like the Order of Peace and stuff that was thrown around out there. So I'm 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 content with the unsettling stars. Okay, well I'm glad you're not unsettled by that title, and <laughs> I'm glad I now getting the title right when I refer to it as the unsettling stars. Uh, so let's start digging into some of this story. We have these aliens, the Paranorians. I'm assuming I'm pronouncing that correct. Got that one. Yes. Nice. Because I'm not good at this stuff. Um, <laughs> but, but as the story begins, it's shortly after Star Trek 09. The crew is still green. No pun intended towards Spock. And they elect to then help the Paranorians find a planet. They're being attacked. And the Enterprise comes in and tr and saves them and tries to help them find a planet because, like you're saying, they're refugees and, and they're not going to make it all the way to the new home world that they're seeking. So the Enterprise crew is going to help them and takes them to the, to the I want to say, Cyborg? Is That's that good. Okay. We'll go with that. Okay. <laughs> two for two. <laughs> and settle on one of the, the moons around the Cyborg planet. I think the planet was Dyborg. 
Nibor. Nibor. Two, three. Oh. Oh, see, I knew I was going to mess up at some point. <laughs> that, that's my <laughs> fault. I misremembered that. Sorry. <laughs> okay. I didn't. Readers, listeners will correct you on all of this stuff, so it's not a problem. They're oh, always yeah. very good about that. <laughs> yeah. You should see my email inbox. Uh, so, so in exchange for the hospitality of allowing the Paranorians to settle there, the cyborg, they, they, the cyborg, I don't want to say cyborg, the cyborg, they had this, they, there was some interest in maybe joining the Federation at some point, or they had made contact, but they wanted to really learn ways to develop technology. And that's something that the Paranorians could help them with. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about these two species and, and their relationship with each other. Uh, I'd be happy to. How much do you want me to tell? Um, uh, the book's out. So I don't imagine we're giving any story secrets well, away I, here. I would say not to necessarily go into any spoilers or secrets right now. And then we'll give a spoiler warning and we'll go deeper into it. Okay. You stop me if I get too deep into it. Okay. Uh, the uh, the Saborians are a really nice, pleasant, uh, semi-rural folk who have a decent level of technology, but not a great level of technology, but they're basically nice folks. And they really want to join the Federation, but they're not quite there technologically, and they'd like to join on a more equal level with other members of the Federation. And the Paranorians come along and are given permission by the Saborians to settle on one of the moons of the Saborian system. It's inhabitable. It has an atmosphere. It's just the Saborians themselves haven't been there because they don't have the tech to do it. So they figure, well, okay, you know, these people are refugees. They need a place to live. Uh, they might as well live on one of these moons that we're not using. And in return, they can help us advance our technology. And that leads to some issues uh, which nobody foresees, including the Enterprise crew, simply because the Paranorians have this uh, interminable desire to be helpful. And because they have a more advanced level of technology, it causes some problems between them and the Saborians, uh, not in a way that, uh, uh, for example, the Europeans did to the Native Americans when they first came over here, but in unanticipated ways. And it also, before too long, starts to raise problems for the Federation in ways that the Enterprise crew did not foresee either. And it all comes, it all comes out of the Paranorians' desire simply to be helpful. And when I was concocting this plot, there are a lot of science fiction stories about uh, aliens, and when they come visit uh, or when we meet them, are they more athletic than us? Are they better at the arts than us? And what happens if a species comes along? And again, I don't want to give too much away here, but you have to see how it works out in the book anyway. What happens if a species comes along that is desperately, desperately wanting to help and be helpful? But they're so much better at everything than we are that we just tend to tend as a species uh, to give up. Because what's the point of trying to develop a new airplane when the aliens come along and give fast, give us faster than light travel? 
What's the point of trying to breed a new kind of radish when the aliens come along and develop 23 kinds of radish that are superior to anything we can do? As a species, there's that danger that you lose uh, the species drive to excel and to improve. Because why bother to do that uh, if the aliens can do everything we can do, or in this case, the Saborians and maybe us too, can do everything we can do better than we can out of a desire to help, not because they feel superior or not because they, uh, they want to dominate, but simply because their way of doing things is a whole lot better than anything we can do. And from that premise, you, you get the thrust behind the entire book, really. Yeah, and I think now we're going to start treading more into spoilers. So anybody who hasn't read the book and doesn't want to be spoiled, why don't you stop at this point? Those of you who have read the book and you want to hear more about uh, the details leading up to the end, that's where we are at this point. And you know, when I was reading this about the uh, Paranorians, in the beginning, I thought, okay, these are probably going to be the bad guys. They're not as innocent as they're coming across. And as the novel continues to go on, the more I started to think they're not really coming across as being like the villain of the book or that they're bad. They're just different. And I love the fact I was hoping it didn't develop into, oh, yeah, they're they have an alternative motive and they're they're trying to destroy something. You know, there's some hidden secret we don't know about that. they're trying. And I was really hoping you wouldn't go and you didn't. I love the fact that it was just more of we're just different and they're they're innocent. They're just they're just so freaking helpful. Remind me of some people that I know where I'm just like, OK, I don't need your help anymore. I've got this. Believe me. Trust me. And it's almost like that. It's like a trust issue. And what happens is if you run into somebody like that, the entire human species goes and lies down on the couch, puts on weight, drinks beer, and watches TV all day because there's no point doing anything else. Absolutely. Right. And that's what the Saborians are dealing with. It's like not only are they getting this technology, they don't even know how to maintain it going Mm -hmm. forward. Yeah, they find themselves being superfluous on their own world, basically. (laughs) Not out of any inimical means, I mean, inimical thoughts or anything else, but just because every time, well, again, we're getting into spoilers a little bit, but just because every time they try to develop something themselves or build something themselves, the helpful paranorians come along and say, no, 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 please, please let us help here. If you do it this way instead, it'll turn out so much better. And it always does turn out so much better. And it starts driving the Saborians nuts, just like it drive us nuts. Absolutely, yeah. And I love the kind of slow build up to that. So we see, you know, hints of this early on. For example, when Sulu is teaching fencing to one of the Paranorians, and after you know an hour, suddenly he's you know making thrusts and stuff that Sulu's not expecting and anticipating, and moves that he hasn't taught him yet. He's just kind of figured this out and you know like I, I i love that these seemingly small little innocuous things that to us seem you know like oh they're just quick studies or maybe he was a dancer and is using that knowledge but the one person who's kind of curious about this through the whole book is spock and he kind of has this strange sense early on that not all is right and you know i, I was wondering like 
it must have been kind of fun to kind of play with that and not reveal too much, but still have Spock kind of wondering what's going on and, and seeing that play out through his character. Well, a lot of people and a lot of characters, as they do in the book, would think, well, everything the Paranorians are doing is great. They're really helping the heck out of the Saborians. They'll probably get to where they can join the Federation themselves. But uh, Spock was looking at this as Spock would and thinking, well, what are, what are the potential side effects or after effects of this relationship we've got established here? Uh, because he's the one who can step back and look at everything without any emotion or, in, you know, not so much emotion in, in the case of the Kelvin universe. And think about these things. Say, well, wait, this looks great. Well, what are we missing here? Maybe it's too great. That's all. It's too good. You know, that's something you always hear through your whole life. If it's too good to be true, it probably is. And you could say that about the whole, the whole plot line of the unsettling stars, but not in the way most people would think of it, I guess. Uh, and that, uh, I think, is going to be one of the big problems with AI. It's not that Skynet's going to come down here and want to, you know, kill all humans. But it's that, you know, what if Skynet or uh, something comes along uh, and says, well, look, this is a better way to do this. And this is a better way to do that. And suddenly everything that we do or try to do in our lives to improve ourselves and make ourselves better becomes irrelevant. What happens to us as a species if everything we strive for isn't worth striving for anymore. And that includes art as well. What happens if AI comes along and writes a better Star Trek novel than anybody can, and everybody agrees it's a better Star Trek novel? Where does that leave the writers of Star Trek novels or Star Trek movies? And this is something we haven't thought through. Everybody is so concerned about AI destroying the human species. What if AI just wants to do what we like it to do, supposedly, which is make everything better? In other words, AI becomes mommy. Can we shake that off? Can we survive mommy? And I'm not naming an AI in my next book, mommy. That's just too obvious. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's when you're talking about that, it's making me think about everything becomes perfect. Like you're saying, if like if every yeah. Star Trek yeah. novel was was terrific, I, I I don't want every Star Trek novel to be perfect. Because no. it, it it gets boring, right? What would podcast? What would you do for podcasts? What would fans argue about <laughs> or discuss? There's nothing, you know. This works fine. This works fine. This character is great. This character is great. The very first novel I attempted, this first story I had published, was published in Analog, and John W. Campbell bought the story. And so when I started my first novel, I sent him the manuscript. When I finished the manuscript, he sent it back and he made many suggestions. I didn't find out till later that this was the way Campbell worked. He did this with Asimov and Heinlein and everybody. But one of the suggestions he made, this is the tar I'm crying, my first novel that I'm talking about. He said, your hero is too powerful. He said, if your hero is too powerful, then nobody will be sympathetic towards him. That's why Superman has to have kryptonite. Uh, and what he was referring to was if, everything, if your hero has no flaws, then you have no drama, you have nothing really to write about. And it was something I've 
never forgotten. And with AI or with the Paranorians, you know, if, uh, you don't have any sympathy in the book except at the beginning where they truly are refugees. But mm -hmm. as the story develops, the initial sympathy you have for the Paranorians as being poor refugees under attack by three hostile ships starts to fade away because you realize the Paranorians don't need any sympathy. They're perfectly capable of taking care of themselves to the point to where they start taking care of everybody else as well. And writers, I think, tend to forget that. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that's one of the big appealing things to me of this story is, and, and we talked about this earlier, how, you know, the Paranorians aren't the big bad guy and they don't have this, you know, you, always in the back of your mind, you're almost expecting like the big galactic takeover must mustache twirling big plan to be revealed. But it's it's really not the case. They're just they just feel like they do a good job looking after everyone and want to do that. <laughs> it's an interesting, interesting thing to work from a writer's standpoint. What do you do when your major threat in the story is well-meaning? Hmm. And your, your bad guys are not bad guys. Right. Uh, so it was really, I wanted to make people think. I mean, that's what Star Trek to me is really about, is making people think. Thank you. So I, I hoped to do that in the book, and I was a little nervous while I was writing the book. I thought, well, what happens if this goes into the publisher and they say there's not enough action or there's not enough things blowing up real good? But I couldn't help it. This was the Star Trek novel I wanted to write uh, with the, you know, that little editorial business at the end. But basically, this is the novel I wanted to write. And they let me write it, and I'm grateful for that, and I hope the fans like it for that reason. There's plenty of other stuff out there where the Enterprise goes around doing nothing but unleashing phasers and photon torpedoes. And, uh, so I don't have to write that. There are other people who can happily go and write that. And there is some action in this. And Oh, yeah. Now, did you feel like you had to, even though the publisher didn't say put the action in there or put action, do you just feel like when you're writing a Star Trek novel that you need to do some of that, and that's why you had, like, you know, uh, these attacks on, on the moon from these, these, uh, bird things or whatever that are going around and this monster from the sea. So the fly no, jaws, I, 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 think had to. I just, I just <laughs> like doing stuff like that. Okay. I mean, one of the things I've enjoyed for, you know, 50 years of doing this is creating alien species. Uh, in fact, if I could write more books from the alien point of view with no humans in it at all, I would do that. But most publishers, for obvious reasons, don't like that because they feel there's nobody in the story to identify with. But some of the greatest science fiction stories, to me anyway, uh, feature largely from an alien point of view. Just off the top of my head, Mission of Gravity, which is considered by some people to be the first real hard science fiction novel. And a lot of it is told from the alien's point of view. And I remember that book from when I was a kid thinking, humans can all go away. We just, we just work with the mesclinites here, and we don't need to talk to the humans at all. And if you read the book, basically, you don't need to talk to the humans. And there are other books like that. And I wrote one called Nor Crystal Tears, which is told entirely from the alien point of view. And I do that as often as I can get away with it. <laughs> 
Well, and that joy definitely comes through in this book, reading the kind of the rich descriptions of the Paranorians and the Cyborians as well. I, I love that, you know, they're not just another humanoid race with a few bumps on their forehead, A, because, you know, in a novel, they don't have to be that. You're not limited to a television budget. You can kind of do what you want. And I love the descriptions of these aliens and, and how truly alien they are, but still, you know, relatable on a personal level and, you know, sympathetic in some ways and and not as sympathetic in others intentionally, of course. Well, that's, first of all, that's the thing that always bothered me about TV Star Trek. But as you say, it was a question of budget and more primitive special effects. They simply, with very few exceptions, couldn't do really alien aliens. The other thing is, and this is always an ongoing problem when you're writing science fiction, is if your aliens are too alien, then the people who are reading the story can't identify with them at all. So it's a real balancing act. You want your aliens to be, as you say, truly alien, but at the same time, you have to have some way of identifying with them. Otherwise, you might as well just write X's and O's for their dialogue and describe them any way you like and not try to justify their actions. What you end up with is a lot of nonsense and no aliens that you can identify with one way or the other. And that's been done in some stories, but it's it's a tough trick to bring off. A recent good example is the film Arrival, mm-hmm. where you have really alien aliens. Uh, and we never do really get to understand the aliens. So the film and the story, the film anyway, um, you have no idea, you really don't identify with those aliens in any way at all. They're just kind of a mechanism in the story for exploring uh, the human characters. And, you know, I don't know. I watched that film. I love that film. Absolutely mm-hmm. love that film. That's real science fiction. You don't get a real science fiction film very often. And that one was. And I watched the whole film and enjoyed it. But as I'm watching it, I'm thinking, gee, I'd really like to know more about these aliens. And it doesn't show. So when you're writing the book, you can't just show pictures of alien aliens, you have to describe them and you have to find some way for the reader to identify with them. Yeah. I find them relatable. It wasn't so much that they're alien. It's not so much that what they look like to me, it's just that you're right. I can relate to them. I'm understanding who they are, their motivation, why they're doing it. I mean, the, the paranorians just feel very much like they're just obsessed just with completing things that they can't get over that obsession of doing something. And I was looking at it as almost like an addiction of somebody who can't stop. I mean, it's just, that's how they are. They just can't stop wanting to help. It's just in their nature. Well, see, that's interesting. We would describe that as an addiction, but the paranorians wouldn't. They say, this mm-hmm. is just normal. And that's where you have that wonderful dichotomy between how humans would look at something and how aliens would look at something. And anytime I can bring that off even a little bit in a book, that that really pleases me. And Uh, that's how somebody who's addicted sometimes is too. They don't acknowledge that they have an addiction. They just think what they're doing is normal and they're in control. That's right. Uh, You, you would have, well, we do have people like that. My wife thinks I'm like that in a lot of ways where if you start something, 
And no matter how difficult it is or how uh, insignificant it is, you have to see it through to its conclusion, where sometimes the most logical, reasonable thing to do, I'm thinking Spock here, would be to say, look, that is an excessive waste of your time and effort and brain power. You'd be much more, you'd be much better off to go do this thing instead. For sure. One of the things we definitely wanted to talk about just because we have this rare opportunity to talk with you in particular is kind of more about your long history with Star Trek. So going all the way back to the Star Trek logs in the 70s, the novelizations of the animated series and your story credit on Star Trek The Motion Picture, you know, given your long history with the franchise, I wanted to ask how you feel about the direction that Star Trek's moving in now. And if you have any plans or desire for yourself to take part in any future novels or projects in the Star Trek universe. Well, as far as the direction, uh, again, that's another difficult balancing act. You want to try and do something new, but at the same time, you don't want to alienate legions of fans and children of fans and grandchildren of fans who have become so familiar with the Star Trek universe and the main characters in Star Trek. Uh, other franchises have not solved this problem really well. I could name one in particular, but I'm sure everybody knows what I'm talking about. Just to be different for different sake doesn't always work. In fact, it usually doesn't work. So you want to do something new, you want to do something different, but you don't want everybody to say, eh, that's not the Star Trek that I know and love, and they go off and start watching the troll movie or something. <laughs> uh, that's, that's one thing. As far as myself personally, uh, I've worked, as you know, in different universes in addition to my own original work, and I'm perfectly happy to go back to Star Trek. Books are easy in that respect if the studio and the publisher give you enough freedom to do something like the unsettling stars, barring the little changing at the end. Uh, if they don't, then it's no fun. Then they, they might go hire somebody else. I've, I've done that. I don't want to sit around with a committee and write a book by committee. And by the same token, I'm not interested in doing a film by committee. And most films uh, are done by committee, no matter what anybody says about the auteur theory of direction, directing. Uh, I'm just not interested in that. What I found out very early on, in fact, uh, specifically with the Star Trek movie, was that while I love movies, I don't particularly like the movie business. Hmm. And unless somebody throws uh, nine figures my way or something, I'm not going to get to make the film I'd like to make. I always thought it would be fun to be the first science fiction writer to direct a science fiction film. But at this point in time, it's, it's a project that even if somebody offered it to me, I really don't think I could do. That's why writing books is so much fun. I have an unlimited budget. I do pretty much I can do anything I want, especially in original work. That's why I started writing orchestral music. Uh, nobody can say, well, you know, too many notes, as the <laughs> emperor says in Amadeus. But if somebody came, if, if the right project came along, including Star Trek and somebody, if somebody said, we'd like you to write a Star Trek movie and we're not going to bother you. I mean, this doesn't happen in the real world. Maybe it happens in the Kelvin universe, but it doesn't <laughs> happen in this world. But if somebody did say that, I'd be perfectly happy to do it. Of course, then they take it and they, and the keywords in screenwriting are 
We think this is great. This is the best script we've ever read. It just needs a little tweaking here and there. And what they mean is twerking, not tweaking. Right. But uh, that's what they do to your screenplay. And people go literally out of their minds and need a lot of therapy. And you can't approach the motion picture business that way. Either you do like Robert Rodriguez did, and you go out and max out your credit cards and your friends' credit cards and your family's credit cards, and you make your own movie for $25,000. Or you say, okay, let's do this move, let's do this screenplay. And then you sit back or an adaptation of one of your original works. Once the studio owns the rights, it's out of your hands. If you don't like that setup, you don't do it. Would I like to do it? Sure, who wouldn't? But it just doesn't happen that often. Even Stephen King can't do that. Hmm. Uh, so there it is. Would I like to do more? Sure. But I'd like to have, I'd like, I'd like to see some respect for a half century's body of work. And the fact that I've known, I've been working with Star Trek for almost that long. And if you like what I do, uh, great, I'll do it. You know exactly what you're getting. If you don't like it, don't hire me, hire somebody else. Uh, you reach that point in any career, I think. If you, if you sell lunch, if you sell lunches from a truck and you've been doing it for 50 years and somebody comes up and says, really like to have mustard on this taco. And you look at him and you say, I don't do mustard on tacos. The guy down the street does mustard on tacos. Go buy your tacos from him. Okay, I'm starting to rant instead of explain. So, but that's that's what the motion picture business does to you. And if you wonder why you get so many bad science fiction films, that's one of the reasons why. Well, I think one of our favorite science fiction films is Star Trek The Motion Picture, which you did write the story to. I don't know how much that's changed, and I know we don't have time to get into that. But the first five, the first five minutes of that movie is all mine. <laughs> okay. That's all directly from, from the treatment that I wrote. After that, things, I had nothing, you know, things really changed. Uh, I do claim credit for making Kirk an admiral because I thought he deserved a promotion at that point and for a few other things that stayed in the film. But uh, this, is, this is old news. Once the film it was originally supposed to be a TV episode, then it became a two-hour movie for TV, then it became a big-budget motion picture. Once it became a big-budget motion picture, I had no pull, and I became an instant non-person. And I, and fans will understand this, I, as a fan, would have gone in and said, look, maybe this line of dialogue doesn't fit here. Why don't you have the character say this? And I would have done that for free. And that was, I later learned, an obvious mistake. Because once you say in the motion picture business you'll do something for free, people start looking at you sideways like, okay, what does he really want? But I was a fan too. I'm still a fan, mm-hmm. and I would have said I would have done it for free as a fan, just so that when you go in the theater back when we go to theaters again, and you pay your ten bucks or whatever, you see the best movie possible up there on the screen. And I do know people in the motion picture business who are willing to listen, who do that, big names, but they are few and far between. And the general studio film is like, as I tell people. People in the motion picture business, they know they can't design the sets. They know they can't run the camera. They know they can't set the lights. They know they can't sew the costumes or do the special effects or direct. But everybody thinks they can write. 
And so everybody wants to put their two cents in. And then it's not even, it's not even a movie by committee. It's a movie by a mob. And I'm just not interested in that. And you don't usually get very good movies when that happens. The more cooks you have, generally it doesn't turn out to be good. There are exceptions, like there are exceptions to everything. But the general rule is you put one person in charge and you let him make the movie. That's why I'm so interested to see Dune, the new version of Dune. Same director, same director as a rival. So we have a director who knows and loves science fiction and we'll keep our fingers crossed and we'll see in the ghost of Frank Herbert, we'll be looking over everybody's shoulder muttering because Frank used to mutter a lot, but. What are you working on now that our listeners might be interested in that you'd like to plug that uh, you've got coming up? I have an original novel coming out from the wonderful Wordfire Press called Madrenga. That's fantasy. That'll be later this year, I think. And something of particular interest probably to people listening to the podcast. Uh, I keep getting asked these questions over the years, and I keep giving a lot of the same answers. And it finally occurred to me that I ought to put them all down in a book so that people didn't have to ask the same questions. And that also, it's, it's history in a certain certain regard. So from Centipede Press, I think later this year, there will be a book called The Director Should Have Shot You, which is all of the stories and reminiscences that I can manage to recollect dealing with my work doing novelizations of films. And there you go. You get answers to all the questions, everything from Luana, the first film I novelized, up to and through Alien Covenant, and, of course, including... Uh, the Star Trek logs. So there's that. Uh, some short stories spotted around here and there. There'll be one in analog, which is kind of, you know, first story in analog in 1971 and one a few years ago, and here's another one. So that's kind of nice. Called The Treasure of the Lugar Morto. And uh, as you know from our pre-conversation, our conversation pre-podcast, I've started writing uh, orchestral music for symphony orchestra. Whether anybody will hear that, I don't know. But uh, you heard a little bit of the prelude anyway, so uh, we'll see. We'll see. That's kind of fun. Yeah, we got maybe, lucky to hear a little bit of that. So. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe the symphony will turn out well and people will listen to it and I'll die. And they'll say, well, why did he spend all of his time writing these science fiction books and these fantasy books <laughs> when he could have been writing music? But um, I'm doing the best I can. It's about a minute of music per day when I have a whole day, but it's kind of fun listening to it, even though it's uh, um, with music composition software, but that's what everybody uses nowadays anyway. So there we are. Um, I need to go take care of the care of the cat. I've gotten really good at giving injections. Uh, Please don't interpret that in strange ways. It was wonderful talking to you guys and uh, maybe we'll do it again sometime. Sounds great. And we really Absolutely. did enjoy the novel and thank you so much for that and for joining us here on the show. Yeah. Thanks mm-hmm. so much. Most welcome. Why am I waving? Nobody can see. I don't know. I can see you waving though. That's good. Enough. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Alan. Okay, guys. Take care and stay safe. You too. You as well. Bye-bye.
It's amazing the amount of history that Alan Dean Foster's had with the Star Trek universe. I thought it was just a singular privilege to be able to speak to him about some of the contributions he's made to the franchise that we all love. Yes. And to those other franchises too. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was great having him on and uh, I, yeah, really excited to have the opportunity to really talk to him about his book. So that was a lot of fun, but you know, it's fun talking about Alan Dean Foster and his many franchises that he's contributed to, but it, it's not the only thing that we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, the orb. But of all the section 31 that we're getting in new Trek, this feels the most legitimate. This feels like the section 31 that we, we know from deep space nine. And it doesn't feel like, Oh, we're just going back to the well again because you know, even Ira said, you know, I know they've used it in the movies, but we created this. Earl Grey. Nope, still no clue. It's going to, I'm going to kick myself when I get it. Yeah, tell us, Jim. Kirsten Dunst. Oh, oh Kirsten my Dunst. gosh, of I, course. I hate the universe. <laughs> oh Kirsten. my gosh, I knew that. What's wrong with us? The best lockdown performance in all seven seasons, in my opinion. Literary Treks. If this were an episode of Voyager, and I actually think this book would make an interesting episode of Voyager, and like we kind of hinted at, maybe it's very much like an episode Mm -hmm. of Voyager that we'll talk about. I don't think it would have been called Seven of Nine, right? No. No, it would have to have like a one-word title to fit in with most of the other Voyager episodes, so you can't really remember (laughs) which one it's about. Yeah, it would just be called Seven. That's what it would be. (laughs) (laughs) To the journey. She did actually mean mm-hmm. what she said in the back in the space just before they die. I don't know. I just kind of like it. It's just. I'm going to tell you, I love you just before I die. Not a minute sooner. <laughs> it's like at least I don't have to deal with the ramifications if I'm dead. <laughs> well, that backfired. Or maybe she was just like, at least I don't have to hear him not say it if we're going to die. So what you're saying is next time that we ask someone to marry them or anyone who asks someone to marry them, they should do it on death's door of like some kind yes. of crazy adventure, like jumping off a bungee jump. Yes, you're in the middle of being eaten by a shark or something. I love you, gobble, gobble, gobble. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please, we would love it if you would leave us a star rating and written review. If you're not an Apple user, though, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. 
You'll get all the details there. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, and we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. So again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We would also love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is in the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks. That'll come right to me and Bruce. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. Find us on our Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books as well as the currently reading section so you know what is coming up for future shows. Plus, Great conversations happening about the books and comics. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group. And we'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shamutala, Justin Ozer, Jeffrey Harlan, and Casey Pettit for their support of the Trek FM network and being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. So, Dan, when you are being just way too helpful around the house for your fiance to bear, <laughs> Where can people find you? Well, I'm, first of all, I'm glad that Nikki doesn't usually listen to these episodes because I think I think she would be drowning us out with her peals of laughter at the moment. But <laughs> on the rare occasion that I'm not helping out completely, 100% all the time around the house, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on YouTube.com slash Productions, where I have a YouTube channel talking mostly about Star Trek and where we're doing the live shows on Fridays, talking about various episodes with me, Bruce Gibson, and Brandy Jackala. Hey, Bruce, that's you. And oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> And you can also find me at treklit.com, my website where I review Star Trek novels, both old and new. And Bruce, when you're not hiding on a planet's surface because these huge, big-mouthed creatures are flying at you and you really wish you'd brought a phaser with you, where can we find you? You'd find me running away really, 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 really fast. And when I'm not running, I'm on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And you can find me, of course... On the network here doing the live show with Brandy when we have new episodes of Discovery and that's called Live from the Edge. And of course, I'm here on Literary Treks. I'm on the podcast with Dan on Positively Trek and I'm occasionally on the Star Wars Report podcast. And of course, of course, I'm always in the Babel Conference lurking around there somewhere. You'll find me. <laughs> so thanks everyone for listening and there will be a next time. So until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.